podcast, huge news before we get into this episode. Right now, go to garyvee.com slash search. That sends you to uh, search.garyvaynerchuk.com, my new search engine. This is the 3.0. Some of you have seen it in the past. This is by far the best version. I mean, you're going to be blown away if you have any questions or thoughts or ideas of what I've said about something, literally anything, (laughs) go into the search engine and type it in. Uh, Also, because today's the big launch, uh, take a screenshot and uh, show me on Twitter what you searched. I know a lot of you are gonna search fuck to see how many times I said it. So anyway, regardless, around TikTok, around insurance agents, about what I would do if I was a doctor, uh, around LinkedIn, around anything you choose, this search engine is powerful. Go to garyvee.com slash search. Check it out or go to my website and check on the toolbar. You can see the search engines there. Uh, would love for you to use it. I think it's gonna be a huge resource for a lot of you. And I hope you have a wonderful day. Go check it out. This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Hey podcast, Joe from Team Gary here. Today's episode is an interview that Gary did in August of 2017 with Business Insider, where he details his story about how he started. Enjoy. Gary Vaynerchuk is with us today. He's a social media guru, a marketing master. He's actually one of the first ever YouTube stars. <laughs> and so you've turned a wine company that your your family started into uh, a business I was making, what, a couple million dollars a year into tens of millions of dollars a year. You're a best-selling author. You run this little thing called Vayner Media, which is something like 100 million plus in revenue. Um, so a million different things going on. We're really happy to have you. Thanks for coming in, Gary. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, of course. So I want to talk all the way about going back. To the beginning? To the beginning, the childhood. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of people think that you know, from the success that you've had, maybe you came from success, but your beginnings are pretty humble. You know, it's right? funny. If I was listening right now and didn't know the person, I actually think a lot of times that people that are successful made it. I'm actually one of the few people, or maybe the majority, I don't know. It's so funny. I actually think my kids are gonna have a harder time being successful than I was. I think being born in Belarus, coming here with nothing, my, my parents working every minute, um, that instilled a huge competitive advantage, uh, a chip on my shoulder, a work ethic, uh, that I, you know, I think there's a very big reason that in the American meritocracy system, to the, you know, by comparison, there's always stuff. But in capitalism, or the version that we've lived through in the last 50 years in America, immigrants win a lot. Um, and they win a lot because um, of a couple core things. So yeah, I didn't start with a lot. You know, I have friends who started with a lot who've now built on top of it and I'm impressed because I used to think that was a disadvantage. So I think there's a million ways to do it. Uh, I, like the narr- I like my dad's narrative the best. I mean, he was 22 when he came to America and had nothing. So that's a really amazing story. I'll take mine though. Um, and so baseball cards, lemonade, yeah, you know, I was a, all those kinds of things that, that kids try and do when they're actually entrepreneurial minded. So you had a series of lemonade stands, right? Yes. One. <laughs> yes. Forget one, but let's make a franchise. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I didn't know it was a franchise when you're <laughs> six. I just knew that there was a lot of kids in my neighborhood and I thought Marissa Bird and Eric Godfrey and Robbie Turnick should put in a good days of work. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I've, I've always had the knack for, and, and, and actually what I was about to say, I've just always had a knack for branding. So like even with the lemonade stands, it was like Gary's lemonade stands and I worked on the signs all day, more so than the lemonade itself. Uh, and then I learned you had to make good lemonade to build an actual business, so that taught me lifetime value and quality. Like, I learned a lot as a kid. I was a very poor student, which was really unusual for immigrants. Um, 
but I didn't see education as my way out. I knew that I had it and that originally started as I'm a good salesman and then it was I'm a good businessman and then it was I'm a good operator and now the current term is I'm a good entrepreneur. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a DNA thing with me. So you watched your parents build this business from scratch, right? Yes. Like, so your dad came here when he was 22 and then he built up a, a wine and mm-hmm. liquor shop, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so how did, uh, and, and from what I read also, you all share a studio in Queens, eight of you in a studio, yeah. packed house. Packed house, my dad, you know, first was a stock boy, then was a manager, then saved all, you know, an amazing piece of advice for a lot of kids, um, 50 year olds, whoever's listening right now is like, saving money is a good strategy. Like, we didn't have, like, I didn't have stuff, but it was because my parents were saving, they were saving, they were saving, and my mom spent, we didn't get toys, like, go outside and, like, paint a rock, right? It was, like, very, very smart, because after seven or eight years, he was able to buy uh, a liquor store of his own in Springfield, New Jersey, Shoppers Discount Liquors. He built up a great business, three to four million dollar a year business, like made it, right? Like literally made it. Middle class, upper middle class, made it. We didn't ever need anything. They didn't spend a lot, they're big savers, but we made it. And then I got dragged into it at 14, you know, oldest son. I'm one of three. I was the oldest son. 14 can even be in a liquor store? Yeah because nobody was really checking, but you know, good question, that's probably not. 16 you could get a permit, but I was in there at 14. That's probably why they put me in the basement, bagging ice, stocking shelves, and um, somewhere around 16, 17, I realized that people collected wine, and that caught my attention because I was deep into baseball cards and comic books at that point, And, um, and I really, really enjoyed learning the wine world and really became fascinated by it. And that all manifested a couple years later to me launching in 1996 uh, a site called winelibrary.com. We rebranded the store to Wine Library. And, uh, and that started my first chapter, right? It, it, we grew the business from a three to four million dollar a year business to a, initially a 45 then a 60 million dollar a year business in a very short period of time. On the back of what I love reading your stuff about, which is business innovation, you know, email marketing, having a website 21 years ago for a single store wine shop, liquor shop in New Jersey was like having a VR studio in a flower shop right now in Iowa. Right, it's like you, Yahoo, Craigslist. It was super early. I mean, there was like, you know, there was was wine.com got like a trillion dollars in funding. It was so early. There was literally not 10. How did you, how did you know to do that? I went on the internet, you know, in 94, and in four seconds landed on AOL bulletin board where people sold baseball cards, and I just knew. The same way I knew that Twitter would be big, and that's why I invested, or Tumblr, or Facebook, or Uber, or, you know, I've done Snapchat, I've done really well on one core principle, which is I think I have intuitive ability to understand consumer behavior more than the average bear, and I'm not scared to bet the farm on that gut feel, right? And so, um, even online dating, I met my wife on JDate, right? Wow. In 2003, when I it was, know it was around in 2003. right, and when it was super like sacrilegious. Two users? No, it was pretty. You know, New York Jew- Jewish dating scene was pretty hopping. But I just remember thinking, like, in 10 years, every single person. I didn't think they'd be swiping to the right, but like, I'm like, every person's going to do this because this is practical. And so people are romantic. People are like, well, I'll never buy a tomato on the internet. This is what I heard in 96. I'm like, hey, well, 
because time is valuable because other things matter more. And so uh, I knew because I thought people would buy stuff on the internet long before a lot of people thought. But that's still 10 years before you really became known for yes. your YouTube videos. That's right. And that's where I think a lot of people assume that your career kind of started. But you were working behind the scenes for 10 years building up this internet business. I think the thing that I'm most proud of is that when people try to take a razz at me as like a self-promoter, uh, and I'm very empathetic to that because I do so much around my personal brand, um, I'm empathetic, but if they even spent four seconds digging and realizing I didn't say a word until I was in my mid-30s and had already built an enormously large business, at least not, not by tech standards, but no cash infusion, 10% gross profit liquor store in the mid-90s to grow to that scale was very hard, right? VaynerMedia's been fun for me. I would tell you secretly, and I haven't said this a lot, I'm trying to give you a nugget for your podcast, I needed to build VaynerMedia for myself because I was starting to become Gary Vee, to your point. The wine videos kind of put me on the map. I read a book in 2009 called Crush It, which gets me into the, you're a motivational speaker, you're a pundit, you're a, and it started becoming about my personality and me on Twitter more than my business accomplishments. So I needed Vayner. I needed to build an agency against the biggest firms on Madison Avenue, and I needed this big success, even to just remind myself that I'm entrepreneur and operator and actual businessman first. I'm not what I think there's a lot of right now, which is a lot of people running around and saying they're an entrepreneur on Instagram. Um, I'm proud of that. You know, like I look at something that is upsetting to me. When I see Yik Yak sell for four million dollars, you know, I feel bad for the guys. And it used to be worth 400 million. Correct. But I don't feel bad because that's entrepreneurship. That's business. And I think a lot of people are getting confused right now of what success actually looks like. Only a very few will break through and actually sell their business, actually go public, actually make it. And, um, and I have a lot of pride in the fact that since the day I graduated from college, I've run two businesses every day of my life. Either Wine Library or VaynerMedia. No in between, no being a personality, no being a speaker. It may feel that way because of the content I've put out, but every day of my life, for the last 20 years, I've been the CEO or operator of a business every single day, and both of them are massively all-time successful within their genres. So what do you think you did to kind of hit this inflection point with your businesses? Because you have been running these, but it seems like, you know, we just talked about, you spent oh, 10 so, years mm-hmm. behind the scenes building and building and building. So what did you do in your 20s to set you up for success to really strike in your 30s? I worked my face off, and I learned my craft. Like how many hours? Like how All of them. Like 24, no sleep. Like, you know, I slept, but like, I worked every, I'll give you a good example. There's not a lot of 20 year olds who can say they worked every single Saturday of their entire 20s, period. I did. I worked 50 to 52 Saturdays a year from 22 to 29 until I met my wife and started having to like build some level of work-life balance. And that's hard work. And what did you do on those Saturdays? I got to Wine Library at 7.30 in the morning and I left at 7, 8, or 9. I just worked. I just built a management staff. I just tasted wine. I just uh, built up the website, learned how to do Google AdWords. Um, you know, I just worked. And when I tell you worked, like, just, I, was, I'm, I am and was a workaholic and, and, I, and, and, and I didn't say a word, right? Like, I didn't do podcasts. I didn't, you know, there wasn't social media, but there was. I didn't start a MySpace page to say, look at me, look what I'm doing. I had the outlets. 
I built my craft. I became a great wine taster, which allowed me to taste 15, 20 wines a day. Like during my day, I would taste 15 to 20 wines. You'd be a salesperson from Enrique Abanez's wine company in New York, and I would taste 12 wines from you, and I would say, wow, that third Rioja, you only want $9 for it, but it tastes like $40 Rioja. And then I would look it up and be like, okay, it's selling for $15.99 on the internet. And it's $9. Hey, if I take 50 cases, will you do seven? Da, 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 da. And I ran a business. I was a merchant, right? And I was training up my people. And I was training, training Brandon Warnicky to be able to replace me if I, quote unquote, got hit by a bus. Um, and I was watching trends. And, I, and that's what led me to YouTube. I'm like, this is going to be big. But wait a minute, I can't buy ads on this like I can on AdRoll or on Google. You know, what do I do with this? Should I, should I get a camera and just talk about wine? That sounds like not a bad idea. I mean, content's important, but I, I didn't even call it content, right? I didn't like, this world didn't exist that we all live in now. I'm like, but I thought about Emeril Lagasse when I did it. Like, I thought about that. So I just started reviewing wine that did take off, as you mentioned. And was it quickly that you got a following? No, the first year, you know, I started on February 20th, 2006. In July of 2007, a year and a half later, the break happened. It was still quite small, but I got invited to be on the Conan O'Brien show. And you're a youngster, so I don't know where you are at this point, but the internet, that the web 2.0 world, which was the seed to the world we're in now, Daring Fireball is a blog, TechCrunch, uh, Jason Kotke, Anil Dash, Waxy.org, these are rich, this right. right when I was starting Business Insider. Love it. So like, in 2007. Perfect, so that whole crew, uh, the front page of Dig, right, Metafilter, you know, that whole, like, you know, just fun to like, right? That whole world, and I don't know if you remember this, but basically that whole world and some of the small early Twitter uh, people, Scoble, Calcanus, Kevin Rose, I Justine, P. Cashmore, and Mashable, Everybody, and I mean everybody, wrote about me being on Conan. Cause it was like, like YouTube person on Conan? And then the clip was awesome. I got him to eat dirt and grass. It went viral on YouTube. And that pretty much, that took me from being a top 500 followed person on, on Twitter to a top 50 person followed on Twitter. Then Kevin Rose asked me to be on Dignation. Then you know I was on the Today Show and Ellen. And, and then it started rolling. Wow. And so what was it that Conan saw in you that made him invite you on a show? Like a wine guy, YouTuber? Uh, nothing. He saw nothing. He had no idea who it was. A producer of that show, cousin, was watching it, thought I was funny, and they have these pitch meetings, right? Where they're like, what should we do? And there's this weird guy on the internet who's like talking about wine in a very different way. They called me. I had always thought what would happen if that happened, so I had the idea of... You thought about what would happen if Conan called me? Not Conan, but I thought, what if daytime TV or morning TV, yeah, of course. I mean, I already think about like what I'm gonna be doing with, on Alexa Voice and what am I gonna be doing on VR and, and how am I gonna use message bots and what's gonna happen when my kids are 18 and like when I buy the Jets, like who's gonna be my GM? Like I, I'm, you know, it's I- gonna be Ben Lair. <laughs> it's definitely not gonna be Ben Lair. I'm not even gonna let him in the stadium. <laughs> um, I, think, <laughs> I think that, you know, by the way, I, met, I referenced Ben earlier, Ben, dad was very successful and to watch how hard Ben has built Thrillist and the Group 9 network, it's just very inspiring. It makes me hope that my children will have that fire even though it's not like he's a trillionaire but he had stuff, oh, way yeah. more than yeah. I did. Kenny Lair is the founder of Huffington Post. Right, and so Ben matters to me a lot, ironically, that you brought him up because he, he shows me very closely because he's a friend of mine, hey, 
you can have stuff but still be on fire and do it. And so he's, that's been fun for me. But anyway, yeah, I like playing the loud, obnoxious um, guy and downplay how I think about things but I'm starting to get in tune with my strategical self. I think it's important because I don't want kids to just think being an extrovert's enough to build a business and so I've started ironically communicating, this is probably the second time I'm doing this, I think a lot. Like I didn't, listen, I didn't launch one of the early e-commerce businesses, I didn't have an email service that had 90% open rates, I wasn't a buyer on Google AdWords the day it came out, I didn't know, I as a liquor store owner didn't by accident know who Andy Bio and Jason Kotke and Neil Dash was. Like, I've been right about consumer trends. So yeah, I thought about, what if somebody calls me and I had this idea of like, I'll train their palate by eating funny things that will make good TV. It did and that became the beginning. Then YouTube sells. YouTube sells. To Google. I, correct. For a million dollars. And it's 1.7, like right? Oh my God, it was 1.7 and just for everybody at home, if Musical.ly sells tomorrow to Viacom for $250 billion, that's what it felt like. It was such a big number. I, right? Everything's huge. a billion now that is a piece of crap. Yeah, everything's a unicorn. Right. That, that was, remember, that was it was huge. insane. When Instagram sold, it was still huge. And it was Correct. So I said, holy crap. I was right about e-com. I was right about Google AdWords. I was right about email. I was right about retargeting banner ads. I'm right about blogging. Now I'm right about YouTube. I've got something better than I can sell wine. The next time I feel it, the next time I feel it, I'm gonna invest. And that happened a couple of months later at South by Southwest. And that's when you became a startup investor. Correct. And so what was your first investment? Twitter. So, that was, so you go from investing in nothing to Twitter. Right. And that's your first one. That's a pretty good track record. It gets better. The next thing I invested in was Tumblr and then Facebook. And you had nothing in between. Facebook? Facebook. How, okay, how did you find Facebook early? In like what year? It wasn't that early in my opinion. It was 2008, seven, late seven, early eight. I had made a video, one of my first business videos that was titled, Facebook should be worried about Twitter. And it was like, why am I starting to use Twitter more? And it wasn't like this big grand statement, it was one person's point of view. Hey, something weird's happening. Because of the way I can use Twitter on my phone, I'm not looking at Facebook as much as I used to. This is interesting. That goes viral inside of Facebook. Dave Morin sends me an email, who was the head of platform at the time, and goes, hey, this is like a lot of people were debating this video. Would, are you ever, do you, would you ever come out to Palo Alto and, uh, and give a talk about it. I'm like, well, I'm going to Palo Alto next week, which I wasn't. And I'm, he's like, okay, come by. I come, company was so small still. Was uh, Cheryl even there yet? No. Wow. And uh, I gave a talk about consumer behavior and I, I didn't even know, but Mark was in the audience. He came down. He's like, you want to have dinner tonight? I'm like, yep. I had a flight, yeah, by the yeah. way, I had a flight that night. I clearly canceled that. We hit it off and, and in 2008, a lot of times when he came into New York, he would hit me up and we got to know each other and then somewhere in that year, uh, Mark and Randy emailed me and they're like, our parents are selling a bunch of Facebook stuff, do you want to buy it? And I said, yep. Wow. So that was big for me. And that was life-changing, uh, life-changing uh, What is dinner investment. like with Mark Zuckerberg? Well listen, this is 2008, 9, 10. That's the Mark I know. Um, I knew it. Like when I tell you I knew it, I wish it was video blogging back then. The first dinner I had, it was so interesting to me. So I'm built on emotional intelligence. I'm not the smartest, I just know what people are gonna do. So he's a tech kid, and an engineer, and a Harvard kid, so I go in thinking he's that. I leave that dinner, I'm like, fuck, this kid absolutely gets human behavior. So that's when I knew, binarily, 
that he was gonna win. Because I'm like, wow, he's got both. He knows how to build it. Like, I can't build stuff. I'm not an engineer and it's not what I'm into. I'm like, but he understands what I understand. That was it. I mean, I was just bought into him from day one. He's super smart. Listen, we're a funny match in the 10 or 15 times we've interacted because I only want to talk and he only wants to listen. That's why he'll probably end up with a hell of a lot more money and be successful. But he's, he's extremely bright. I like him a lot. I think he's kind. But most of all, he just understands people. And that's weird because people look at him as like introverted and quirky and all that, but I don't see it and I never saw it. And obviously he's more media trained and grown into himself. So I can't speak to how he rolls now because I haven't spent time with him, but I can definitely tell you there was no confusion from, uh, from, that, uh, from those initial meetings for me. And I mean none. So fast forward, you then invested in Snapchat down the mm-hmm. road, right? I did. now I guess Facebook's arch nemesis. They seem to be duking it out quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Snapchat would love to feel like it's an arch nemesis. I think right now they're on different scales. Um, but yes, I, uh, I love this video that I have in, two th- this is back to documenting. Somewhere in 2012, I think, there's this video of a fatter version of me saying, all of you will be on Snapchat. Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, I don't predict much. You know, this morning, when I wake, wake up and I see there's a app, number one in the app store, it's called Face Off or whatever it's called, right? I take note, I download it, I'll play with it tonight, I'll definitely play with it this weekend. I'm watching, I'm not really predicting, you know, I, I jumped on social cam and Yik Yak and Plurk and Vine and a lot of things that didn't go on to be uh, humongous. I invested in Yobongo, you know, like I've, I've followed different trends, um, a lot have won, but I, um, I, Instagram's a good one for me, you know, because I wasn't a photographer, I, I was slower to understanding its insanity, you know, so, for me, it's just about pattern recognition. So how did you find Snapchat? I mean, it's one thing to find and spot something with another for a founder to let you in. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, they all have different paths, as you heard, right? Um, Tumblr, I was just, David Karp was in New York. Who's a founder. Yeah. Right, and so I was, just, I was just in the same Web 2.0 places as he was, and I would tell him things, and he's like, wow, you really, you're really, like, why are you older dude talking about junior high kids in the right way? And so, for me, it's agnostic, right? Like, I'm fascinated. If anybody's listening right now and you're trying to sell to 50 to 80 year olds, B2B or B2C, you can't believe how well Facebook's working on 50 to 80 year olds. I'm a practitioner. I actually use these things. So, um, they've all been different. Snapchat, I should have invested earlier. I was way on it before I actually invested. Um, I, uh, but I don't like reaching out. I never reach, I still, I have not spent a day with Evan. I've spent a ton of time with Emily White, who was originally his right hand, and then Imran, and you know, I was bringing a lot of value, and they're like, hey, would you like to invest? And I said, yes, but if I had the gear in me of like reaching out and saying, like, I want in, I'd probably have left a lot of money on the table because I would have gotten into Snapchat if Evan would have had me, or Bobby would have had me, way earlier. What I tend to do is, and you know this, is I talk about stuff in public. And I think I talk about stuff early. And I talk about stuff in a very selfish way, which is I don't want to get into Snapchat or I don't want Twitter to like me or I don't want uh, uh, you know, YouTube to work with VaynerMedia. I, Gary Vaynerchuk, want to be historically correct because that will be the ultimate leverage. Right? I own a lot of Twitter stock and bash it for the last 18 months. Well, that's how you make a name, right? You like, take a I stance so. and then, especially if it's right, I think so. Us. You know, I think you know what I'm proud of. If somebody's like, "Well, Gary talks and promotes about the things that he is an investor in," 
I'm happy to like show people my Merrill Lynch account and be like, cool, let's talk about it. Here's what I invest in, here's my holdings, here's my financial thing and like, tell me why in the world I would be saying that Twitter is in real, real trouble and not a good business model or like, why would I be doing those things or, or uh, Instagram. Literally, literally, three months before Instagram started creating all the features that Snapchat had, I made a video or in a daily vlog said I'm worried about Instagram. Facebook's much younger than people think. Snapchat's exploding in that demo. Is there a good spot for Instagram, right? That was my point of view in you know, three months before all the stories and everything came. Now, I don't think there's a more powerful platform. It's beyond hockey stick growth. It's like basically a vertical line. Correct. And so to me, I'm not romantic about what I said yesterday. If I said it yesterday, it's what I believed that day and I think my brand and my word and my legacy needs to be the North Star. So, you know, they all happen different ways. They, they, you know, my investments, they all come from different directions. So let's talk about creating VaynerMedia. Okay. That's your, your that's my thing. that you're in now. Yes. Um, and you and your brother did this yes. in 2009. Yes. It's now, is it really 100 million in annual revenue? Yeah, we'll do over 125 this year. And where does that all come from? That comes from clients like uh, Chase and Budweiser and GE and Toyota and Quaker Oats and, and Amazon Prime in the UK paying us for either spending their media and giving us a commission, making video productions to distribute on the social and digital web, or managing their social and digital properties and producing non-video content, or consulting for them um, on so their strategies. Like a social media agency of sorts? We're a modern day ad agency. We're, mad, you know, we're no really different than Droga5 or AKQA. The only difference is we do everything and most don't because I'm building it for myself. I don't want to sell it to a holding company. Um, we started doing small business. I come from that world. So, I mean small business. It's $25,000 a month so you got to be doing millions in revenue. But yeah, we're just building client service business. It's nothing sexy. It's not like I invented anything. The only difference is I'm really good at marketing. Yeah, so explain how you started. So, just uh, sum up what VaynerMedia is because there are a ton of moving parts. And then, like, how did you start? In 2009, ESPN sent me an email and said, Can you come to our office and talk to us about Twitter? Why do you, Gary B, have more followers than all of the Disney properties combined? And I'm like, How many followers do you have these days? These days, I have 1.5. Four on Twitter, 1.7 on Instagram, two million on Facebook. So at the time I had like 700,000, which was like like insanity. Uh, I go, okay. I replied, you know, it was sitting in my inbox because I was busy. By the time I came back to it that night, they had already emailed the second time, like, we'll pay you $5,000. I'm like, I'm coming, right? So I go. They offered you $500,000? No, 5,000. Oh, I was like, whoa, ESPN. $5,000 to come and spend an hour, which, also, I thought, was I, I thought it was insane. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't take it now, but I, I mean, it was, I, I'd probably have to think about it. Like, it was really cool, and I was really excited. And we had this conversation, and I get out of the office, and my brother calls me. Now, my brother is now a senior at BU, and it's like February, and he's graduating in May, and we're like kind of under the gun because we promised ourselves we're going to start a business together. And we're thinking fantasy sports because we think it's going to be big. And we're trying to figure it out. And I call him and go, Mimi, you know how I talk about maybe one day buying businesses? I'm like, instead of doing that cold, maybe we should start a consulting firm is what I said. Learn about corporate America, make some money, and then decide what to do. And that's what we decided to do. 
I got another email from Gillette, the razor company, to like do some sort of like idea session. And so we just started. We didn't know what we were doing. Uh, we hired four or five VJ's friends from college and high school. And we literally started reaching out to people. I started using my network. I was out and about. So we landed the NHL, Pepsi, and Campbell's. And what we did for them for $5,000 a month was we created. So the NHL's Twitter and Facebook account did not exist until we created it. We started the company in another amazing company's uh, conference room called Buddy Media, which sold to Salesforce. Um, that's where we started it. We were literally in a conference room. We later moved to Mike Lazaro opens his doors. Mike Lazaro opens his doors. Um, and we just start the company. And, um, and the first two years, what happened, a couple months later, Crush It came out. And that's when Gary Vee kind of was born. And that's your first book. That's my first book. And it went real viral. And you did a 10 book, book deal, right? I did. Now, what was not reported in there was if my first book sold enough copies to pay for the entire 10 book advance, I would become a free agent, which is what happened. Wow. Now, I re-upped with HarperCollins, but if, for all the nerds, the six people that are nerds of my content, if you look at my first four books, the first one's Harper Studios, the others are Harper Collins. So it was made with that weird little division they had called Harper Studios. Anyway, so I wrote that book, it went very viral. And then I started getting offered $25,000 to give a speech and that was so hard to say no to at the time in my life. And why did you say no? I didn't, which meant I wasn't involved in Vayner that much the first two years. I got us the clients, I would check in, but it was really AJ and our band of 20 young characters in the beginning. And the first two years show that, I think we were doing like $2 million in revenue. In August of 11, I decided to take over full time because I was stunned that two years later, nobody was doing what I wanted to do two years earlier. And I realized, oh my God, corporate America's slow. And so I attacked. I saw an opening and I attacked. And so we, uh, we I got serious. And from 2011, August 2011, which really means 2012 because I was cleaning up and hiring, uh, in the last five years, we've gone from 25 to 750 employees, from three to 125 million in revenue, um, and now we're a real player as an agency, and we're doing that at the Fortune 500 level, and now with Vayner Beta, our small business world, we're gonna really go after the kind of mom and pop, six pizza stands, four car dealerships. I'm excited, because that's my roots, it's gonna be fun to really help bring them online and, and what we do for the biggest brands in the world, obviously not as much because the fees are different, but what does a two minute Dollar Shave Club? Not that we could ever guarantee it because creative is very difficult, but giving a flower shop the at bat to make a video, right? That means something, can change your business. For example, for everybody who's buying Google AdWords, if you run a Facebook video that does well, your costs are gonna go down because your SEO juice is gonna go up. People are gonna share your Instagram content. It's about brand. It's what Business Insider did so well. Not only did you guys do the math thing well, right? The search, the SEM, the SEO, you know, you guys did brand right. You did, and you have to do both. And I'm a good math and art marketer, which means I'm a salesman and the branding and marketing person, and that's why we've been able to help Sour Patch Kids become a monster brand. Um, Stain Masters has such a super viral video right now on YouTube, that, on Facebook and YouTube, but Facebook that's really helping. It's a carpet cleaner, but it's changing its business because of, of the strategies and the creative, and I'm proud of that. And so, yeah, we're building a big agency. So when you're building a brand, yes. what are the most important things that you need to 
Uh, there's a lot of things. I would say the most important things are a couple things. First of all, you have to know who you are, what you are, what you stand for, but that is subjective and that's cliche marketing bullshit jargon, but it does matter, it helps. Um, you have to know who you're targeting. Like, you know, I think too many people fight the market. There's certain people that are never gonna want your stuff. Like, no matter what you do, there's certain people because of, are never gonna love me because I curse and I have bravado and I'm a Jersey boy and I'm brash and they won't take the time to see the humility and the patience and the truth, right? And they shouldn't. Who am I to actually make them have to take that time? So brands have to be honest with themselves and know who's gonna buy their stuff and who's not. And most importantly, they need to market in the year that they actually live in. We have brands spending ungodly amounts of money on print, television, outdoor, radio, programmatic banner ads, uh, just uh, website takeovers like garbage. And when I say garbage, they work-ish. They're just so overpriced. Like, I don't know what else to say. Like, I do not believe that it is worth the hundreds of thousands of dollars in distribution and hundreds of thousands of dollars in cost to make one 30 second video to tell a 29 year old woman that your soap is great in a world where she is not going to consume that commercial. Like, I do not think it's great to spend millions of dollars on banner ads across the desktop internet on the right side below the fold of tons of websites that nobody's ever gonna pay attention to that banner ad because the CPM cost is low. So one thing that you're doing at Vayner that's interesting is you're kind of merging um, content and brands. And in the journalism world, you know, people start screaming. There is news, I think that BuzzFeed is launching a team of people that are gonna start like, off sending you things that you should want to buy. Right. And there were people in the journalism community being like, oh my god, that's like good thing they work for a forward-thinking publisher because you know, like New York Times would never do something like that. New York Times does it. <laughs> New York Times right. has a wine club in their newspaper during the dining in section. All that is is romance and highbrow uh, snobbery. So I heard from three New York Times friends of mine, Ben Kaufman, I was an advisor to Corky, is running that program at BuzzFeed. I think every publisher should sell stuff. You just, why not, as long as you're honest. If you're, it's one thing if Business Insider creates business software, never tells anybody that they own it, and then writes articles, best 10 pieces of software, and number one is theirs. That's bad. But the New York Times sells wine. The New York Times is a competitor of my family wine business. I don't know what else to say. They do. So like, I laugh when I, I, had, like, I have a lot of friends that work at the Times because I'm a fan. I'm just, it was so fun to make fun of them. They're like, you believe that? They're the same, right? They're clad, you know. I'm like, of course I believe it. You've been doing it. And they're like, <gasps> And I'm like, where are you? Uh, so yeah, I, yes I have. I, I've, I've started something called The Gallery, which is, so VaynerMedia is what I've been running. I've created a holding company called VaynerX. VaynerMedia sits on the left. On the right side is something called The Gallery. Uh, our first purchase was a company called PureWow. Uh, it's in that Pop Sugar, Refinery29 female sp- uh, space. It's run by Hi- Ryan Harwood, who was the CEO and founder, and you invested in the company, right? Yes, Ryan Harwood. Uh, is somebody I got to know actually through Ben. They were they were college friends. He was in Goldman Sachs. He came into the publishing world. Uh, he with Pittman, Bob Pittman. They had success with Daily Candy, so they probably rebooted it. Pure Wow, probably five six years ago, somewhere around the B round. My fund with Stephen Ross Vayner RC invested in it, which allowed me to see how good Ryan and Mary Kate and that team was. 
then, uh, and then it seemed like they became com- kind of available. I had become increasingly aware that Vice and BuzzFeed and, and Vox were building creative shops and felt like they were true competitors because they had better digital DNA than, let's say, the agencies on Madison Avenue. And I thought, look, I can sit here and watch that happen or I can do the reverse. And uh, in my great dream of building the greatest communications and marketing machine, uh, publishing will be part of it. And I never worried about like the conflicts and things of that nature because every everybody's doing it. New York Times is doing it. You know, every publisher's Conde and her like. So that was easy. It just that an agency hadn't done bought a publisher because most of them can't afford it, um, and most of them don't have, to be very frank, the ambition I have. Like you know, when you want to buy the New York Jets, you have to do big things and. Ryan's a really good human being and a really good guy and so a great partner and I'm excited about it. And I'm excited, I've been really getting into the business and you know, the same way I've built my brand and Wine Library, um, I think I can do a lot of damage, AKA really help uh, PureWow and I intend to. So how close are you to buying the Jets? Far. The Jets are probably 2.7, 2.8 billion dollars. I'm nowhere close to that. Um, do you more Facebook investments? I do. Um, uh, but the good news is, I don't want to buy the Jets tomorrow. I love the journey of being an entrepreneur more than I like of the idea of buying the Jets. And so, and the good news is Woody Johnson's healthy and young and not looking to sell. So we'll see how it plays out and if the booby prize is uh, the Dallas Mavericks, well, I, no, actually, Cuban's too young. If the booby prize is the Milwaukee Brewers, we'll see and maybe it'll be something altogether different. But all I can focus on is trying to build the business uh, around giving me those kind of opportunities in the future. So um, we've already gone for a long time. Okay. I've talked to you forever, but yes. I have a couple of wrap-up questions. Yes. Because you give these big advice videos. Yes. Um, and they're on these big topics that everybody thinks about when they go through running a business. Let's do it. So first one, um, dropping a loser friend. You've done this a video is a, on this. Wow, I can't believe you went there. This is a tough one. How do you get rid of friends who are useless to you? Or it's like, not, what, you know, that's, that and you know what's funny? It's not useless, right? The, the, this has been the one that I've been very hot on talking about in the world, but I've been scared of. Because even when you just said that, I'm like, ah, this guy's <laughs> terrible. It's a good provocative headline. It is. I think that people are keeping very negative people around them. And if they aspire to change their situation, it's imperative to audit the seven to 10 people that are around you. And the reason I go after a friend or a parent, I mean, in the details of that headline, I said, hey, you may have to audit your mom. And not that I want you to never talk to your mom again, but you may want to take a step back. And I've done this for friends and acquaintances and it's a very painful, eye-opening experience to realize, wait a minute, my dad actually doesn't want me to be successful because he's not happy and you know whether you call it misery loves company, and, and it's not like parents are bad people. It's a it's a human trait. It's just a thing. So to me, in a world where it's much harder to get rid of your older sister forever, it might be intriguing to say, "Hey, I've had this friend who spends all their time making sure I'm not going to the next level." And it really came around the fact of who listens to you to com- when you complain. The only groups of people that will listen to you are the people that have to, your core family and your other loser friends, right? Like the other people who also want to complain about their boss. And yeah, I thought it was actually a very good emotional, not willing to be talked about, non-politically correct thing to say, maybe if you got rid of one friend or spent a lot less time with one friend who's a real drag and a negative force and added 
a positive person in your office as somebody you now, if you switched it from 80 days hanging out with your negative friend and one day with your office acquaintance who's super positive to four days with your negative friend and 12 with this new person, not only do I believe I've physically watched me mentor people in my organizations to a totally different life on that thesis. All right, that makes sense. So it's basically the company you keep and if it's a positive company, you think it'll be more successful. I think that's right. Okay, and another topic you talk about is being lonely at the top. How do you solve for that? What advice do you have for people who are going through that? You don't solve for it because it's the truth. When you're the CEO, uh, it's on you. It's Sally's fault. It's Rick's fault. Like, like everything that's wrong at Vayner is my fault. It just is. I don't know what else is. Can I blame it on your brother? No, my brother left, by the way. I don't know if you know this. My brother AJ left. Uh, so I definitely can't now. He's been gone for about a year. Uh, AJ, uh, AJ has Crohn's disease and decided the insanity of the growth was, he just had enough. Uh, and we've started a Jerry Maguire-esque thing called Vayner Sports. We literally are in the sports management business and actually of taping of this, filming of this, I don't know when you're gonna air it, today's the NFL draft. It's really exciting, our first kind of class and some of the guys will probably go in the third, fourth round, so not today, but I'm Wait, excited. You represent. Yeah. That's great. It's really fun. You really are Jerry Maguire. Yeah, flat out, I'm not kidding. Like so Vayner Sports, we represent Jalen Reeves Maben, linebacker from Tennessee, he's amazing, and John Toth, uh, center from Kentucky. Both guys are early, mid-round kind of guys. We've also have Matt Paradis, who's a starting center for the uh, Broncos, and we just signed Braxton Miller, who's a very famous college player now in Houston, um, as a wide receiver who I love, and Walter Powell and a couple of others. So we're just getting going. Humble beginnings, that's the theme. Um, so you can't blame AJ. Can't blame AJ, and so it's lonely. So here's what I would say. 80% of you who are listening are actually not entrepreneurs. You think you are. You're doing it because it's hot. And what you really are is a great number three, a great number seven, and that's why I'm scared. Because you're not actually built for eating shit and being in fire all day long. You're gonna be more depressed, it's even harder, and I think it's time we talk about entrepreneurship in a real way because there's a lot more underlining suicide and depression in our tech, startup, entrepreneurial world and nobody has brave, VCs aren't talking about this. People aren't talking about this and I necessarily don't want to talk about it either but it has to be talked about which is I don't wanna be the entrepreneur who says hey I'm an entrepreneur and you're not but please give a real thought. If you thought about dreaming of being a Bain consultant when you were 16, 19 and when you went to Princeton, but now all of a sudden you're the founder of an umbrella company, you need to understand that. And I think we're in a vortex of fake entrepreneurship that's gonna lead to a lot of pain. So I wanna talk about the loneliness because it is hard. I've had a shit week, Allison. Like honestly, there's been a lot going on. Clients, internal stuff. It's not fun. But it's my calling. Like I don't even know anything else. So how do you deal with it? Do you like putting it in like- I put it in perspective and honestly I love it but I love shit. I love the pain. I love the process. I'm just watching kids I invested in not and really struggle and like go to Coachella and skiing every weekend to deal with it which then means they're not putting in the real work to the business and they're just, you know? And they would have killed it as number nine at Instagram. They would have made a fortune. They would have crushed it as number 11 at Purple Mattress or Casper. They would have dominated as number 29 at Business Insider. But everybody thinks they're a goddamn founder now. Right. No, it's totally true. Um, so I guess the last one that I would ask you is, you're clearly a confident person. You don't mind speaking your mind. You're assertive. How much of success do you think requires that? I don't think it's, I don't think it's, I think it's the one we see. 
I think the opposite version of me is the one we don't see, which is there are tens of thousands of outrageously successful businesses of very quiet, very calculated, calm executors who are confident. You can't be successful without being confident. They believe in themselves. But I would, you know, they have their own version of assertiveness. I'm very assertive when the lights are on. In this interview, on stage, I would tell you that starting Daily V, the vlog, has been a lot of fun because a lot of people have been able to see, I manage much more, let's call it cliche motherly, right? Very, I'm an emotional, HR-driven CEO, so I'm, I'm confident in my advice. I'm assertive in the way that I don't think people define it as, which is, I'm, um, I, I, I believe in it, um, but it's, I don't yell at anybody. I don't, you know, do that thing. So I think there's a lot of ways to be successful. Um, I think that the work speaks for itself. And I think if you go look at the list of the 100,000 uh, richest, most successful entrepreneurs, business people, there's an ungodly amount of names you never heard of. There's a lot more non-Richard Bransons than there are Richard Bransons. As a matter of fact, it's very hard to be so out there because you take a lot of heat just because that's what we do, right? We build up, we drag down. Um, so I think most people don't actually want it. I mean, it's funny, I, I'm going through my Rolodex in my head. So many of the kind of more successful people I know, just unknown, just not really, right? You know this, you're in the business world. Like, so I don't think that, I think confidence matters. And I think, and I think other things matter. Like, I would tell you, Empathy is probably why I'm more successful than confidence. I'm empathetic to the customer, to my business partners, to my employees. I, they have their things to worry about. Empathy has been a bigger strength of mine than, than confidence. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think self-awareness, right? Like, I, listen, I don't hide from being an extrovert. It comes natural to me, I can't contain it. I actually think there's plenty of negatives that go along with like being out there. Um, but I think whether, you know, I see a lot of people who come to me, introverts, hey Gary, I want to be like you. I want to be out there. I'm like, why? And they're like, well, I'm like, you're crushing it. Being you, you need to be more you, not a little bit of me. And, and I think that's everybody's uh, blueprint. Um, so I should let you go, but I just have some go more questions Go, go, for we'll, you. I'll go fast. Okay. I've been long-winded. Okay. So you've, got, you've got me in a very thoughtful zone. <laughs> no, no, I like it. I want it's to a, go. This is a very weird version of me. <laughs> Good. Um, well, we'll capitalize on the weird. So, you know, in all of your businesses, I feel like rule number one of running a business is focus. You're doing like 10 different things. People think I am. Let's talk about it. Yeah, you, I mean, you have your sports agency business. Which, which, let's talk about it. Your media which, business. But let's talk about it. Let, let's go through it because I think it will help and it'll help other entrepreneurs. I think I'm good at making it look like that. So one thing, by having a vlog and it shows all this stuff, it feels like a lot's going on. But for example, 80% of my public speaking is only accepted if I believe there's business development for VaynerMedia. So instead of doing RFPs like Ogilvy, I go to CMO conferences, speak real truths, and get a client without spending four and a half months courting them. That's smart. That's VaynerMedia CEO, Vayner Sports. AJ and team are running it. I am, just like I was for VaynerMedia, the guy that gets Braxton Miller. So yes, do I have to fly to Houston and close it? Sure. How did you do that? Uh, we hired somebody who went to Ohio State that had a relationship. We just started talking, getting to know each other, and over the course of nine months, you know, we are going to build a very disruptive sports agency. We're going to make more money off the field for these athletes than anybody has ever done, because we'll do a lot of small deals. We're going to hustle. We're not just going to rely on Puma, Reebok, Nike, Under Armour, and 
Panini sports cards. So it's gonna come to us in waves, but that's how, just personal relationships. Um, so the sports thing takes very little of my time, except when I have to do it, or when I'm DMing a kid who's gonna be coming out of college on Instagram. It takes up some of my time. Um, there's VaynerMedia, which is 90% of my time. There's being Gary Vee, doing this podcast. But again, you know, I'm doing this podcast and I'm also in the zone right now of where we just opened up Vayner Beta and I like the idea of being able to get a client or two from this and I'll be honest, I also like giving back to the things I believe in. Number one, the entire entrepreneurial space. I deserve it. I owe it everything. I will always give my ideas to it for free forever. Number two, I'm a real fan of what you guys have done here. Thank you. I just think Henry and Kevin, you like, you guys did it and I think you have to support winning formulas because it's good karma, it's smart. Number three, I want access to this audience. 40% of this audience, 70% of this audience never heard of me as much as I'm out there, never heard of me. The other 30%, 40% of it don't like me. They, thought I'm, they think I'm brash or they think I'm a self-promoter. Maybe, maybe this changed their mind. So I'm always putting in the work and then that will feed itself out. So, you know, I've really calmed down on my investing because I think there's a lot of fake entrepreneurship. So I've been, um, see, Phil Toronto is running point for me and is looking at a lot of stuff, but we're looking at, I'm looking at very little stuff. You know, pure wow, Ryan knows what he's doing. I'm in it, but that's still part of the Vayner X machine. And I don't even know what else, what else am I doing, right? The wine business, Brandon and my dad are running. But sure, I'll have a meeting with Brandon last night. Don't forget, I'm also working 15 to 18 hours a day, which means if you really think of somebody's eight hour day, and you think about 40 hours, and then you think about lunch and breakfast and dinner, which I do none of during my actual day, and then you think about you don't eat. Nope. And then you think what do you do? I eat at night. Just at night. Yep. Do you get what? Yes. Do you get hungry? I could never do that. Nope. Like where's my bagel? Nope. This is this is the part where Agent jumps in and says Gary's actually a robot. That's why this is all <laughs> happening. Look, I don't, um, and so that helps. And I don't want, read four Business Insider articles in the middle of the day. I'll read them at one in the morning or when I first wake up. And I don't watch. Do I sleep? definitely don't do watch you sleep? a YouTube. Are you one of yeah. Those nope. Sleepers? Nope. I'm I'm all in on Ariana Huffington. Like, give me six or seven. Give me twelve to six every day. Then I work out and then I work. And so, you know, uh, weekends and seven weeks vacation with my family, extremism on my work-life balance. Um, so, I'm getting a lot done. Great, all right. Well, that's something to aspire to. I mean, it's something to aspire to if it makes you happy. Mm-hmm. Like, if, it, if it's not to aspire to to make money, I, tell, I can tell you that right now, you can make ungodly amounts of money working nine to five and not eight to two at Wall Street. Like, it's not about the money. It's about, the thing to aspire to that I think I'm a blueprint of, forget about people knowing who I am or how much or little money I make in my life. I'm happy every day. Do you know? Despite all the pain. Just because I want the pain because I like the process but I know the pain is real and that's why I want to make sure like, hey, Karen, are you the founder of this SaaS business or are you the unbelievable COO? or chief marketing officer. And I don't know, I don't know, but I know that everybody all of a sudden decided they were the CEO of X. So, self-awareness. I, I need to run, and I'll, we'll do this again, I promise. Self-awareness. And then reverse engineer it and put yourself in a position to succeed. Great, well thank you so much, Gary. Thanks. All right, episode's over. Like I said in the beginning, please leave a review and subscribe up on Apple. It would mean a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot to me. Thank you very much. Thanks, Gary. Today's highlighted review is Practical and Straightforward by Hem205. I love Gary. 
His practical and straightforward approach is what keeps me coming back. Because of his content, I have developed a more self-aware approach and have redirected my energy and passion to the process. Although it's a work in progress, I feel good about the way I am starting to approach life in general. Listening to his podcast has helped me to simplify things and not beat myself up for failing to reach a goal by a certain time. Thanks to Hem205, keep those reviews coming. We could highlight yours next.